Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 153. 1840 was a leap year, and in November, David Livingston had left Britain for Africa. His story of exploration and commitment is extraordinary. While he would go on to become better known for his attempts at finding the source of the Nile in East Africa, it was his formative phase of life at mission stations in Southern Africa that we are going to be interested in. Born on the 19th of March, 1813, in Blantyre, Scotland, he was the second of seven children and employed at the age of ten in the town's cotton mill. This was way before rules about those things, and this ten-year-old worked twelve hours a day as a piecer, whose job it was to lay broken cotton threads on the spinning machines. He was then drawn to the teachings of local evangelist Thomas Burke. He studied medicine, and then was ordained as a minister of the church at the Charing Cross Medical School. A chance meeting with South Africa's Scots missionary Robert Moffat in London changed his life. Moffat was running the London Missionary Society station at Kuruman, and Livingston asked him if he would do for Africa, as in survive. I said he would, Moffat wrote later, if he would not go to an old station but would advance to the unoccupied ground, specifying the vast plain to the north where I had sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary had ever been. Young David Livingston was going to take that to heart over the next few decades, and would become known as the greatest missionary in Africa, even though the truth is he converted only one person to Christianity. He left England for the Cape in November 1840 and spent most of his time on board studying Dutch and Setswana. Joining him on board was someone else we're going to hear a bit about in coming episodes, another LMS missionary called William Ross. So, there we go, Livingston and Ross sailing to Southern Africa, imbued with the concepts of evangelical Christianity with its core message, influenced by revivalistic teachings in the United States. Livingston entirely accepted the proposition put by Charles Finney, professor of theology at Oberlin College in Ohio, that the Holy Spirit is open to all who ask for it. For Livingston, this meant a release from the fear of eternal damnation. And being an earnest young chap, he felt that folks should hear about that. Initially, he wanted to spread the gospel in China, but the looming First Opium War led the London Missionary Society directors, deciding Southern Africa was safer for him. Livingston and Ross finally landed in Simons Bay in March 1841 after a stop-off in Brazil. Livingston stayed at Dr. Phillips' home in Cape Town, and Dr. Phillips spoke quite a bit about how he believed in the policy that all people were equal before God and the law, and Livingston believed that too. Clearly then, Livingston was not going to be welcomed by the Boers and the British settlers, most of whom by now definitely did not believe that message. Livingston sailed up the coast to Algoa Bay in May, then he took a two-month ox-wagon trek, along with William Ross, to the Kuruman Mission. There he immersed himself in Tswana life and trekked more than a thousand kilometers to Mabotsi in modern-day Botswana, near Zirost. We'll come back to more stories about Livingston and Moffat, who are going to leave their mark on the people they met all the way into Zimbabwe, and in Livingston's case, all the way into the thick jungles of Central Africa. I've mentioned this man in this episode because it was missionaries like Livingston and Moffat, Philip and Ross, who were preaching equality before the law long before this became accepted in Southern Africa. Their influence on our political system is profound, some will say profoundly damaging, others profoundly positive, it just depends on your political view. But we cannot ignore these individuals in our tale. 
So while we're looking at individuals, let's take a gander at Lord John Russell, the British Secretary of State, who succeeded Lord Glenelg. He found time to turn from the vexed questions of the constitutions of Canada, Jamaica, New Zealand and Australia to write a dispatch on June 18, 1840 to Lord Napier, Cape Governor, directing him to resume military occupation of Port Natal. It so happened that the letter to Napier literally was crossed by one written on the 20th by Napier to Russell, in which the Cape Governor requested that he be allowed to retake Port Natal on behalf of the Queen and for the good of the British Empire, etc., etc. Great minds think alike, and yes, fools never differ. Napier wasn't hanging back. He suggested that at least 1,200 or perhaps 1,500 troops be dispatched to Port Natal as a protection, Napier had written. The longer they, and by they he means the Boers, are left in the quiet possession of the country they now inhabit, and the more settled they become in their new possessions, the more difficult it will be to bring them back under the dominion of the British crown. While this correspondence preceded, the foottrekkers, of course, had their own ideas. On the 4th of September, Badnost, who was Volksrat president, and Berger, who was secretary of the Rat in Peter Maritzburg, submitted their own letter to the governor, in which they wrote, that it may graciously please Her Majesty to acknowledge and declare us a free and independent people, a right so dearly purchased by our blood. The Rat wanted to send two representatives to Cape Town to negotiate what all of this could mean. Now you can see that something had to give here. What was going to happen was partly caused by the three-month delay it took in communication between the Cape and Great Britain. This sea voyage lasted an average of 90 days one way, so six months could elapse before an answer would be received. Napier replied to the Volksrad before he received a letter back from Russell in England. He said it would be premature to make any decisions. He would wait for direction from Her Majesty's government before making any decisions about recognizing any independence. Russell's return letter arrived on the 5th of September with an interesting set of instructions which were quite an eye-opener considering they came from the English Secretary of State. He agreed to allow the Boers their own president and council but said the latter should be formed by the governor. The Boers were not going to like that. Russell supported the idea of civil authority ruling the area. He wanted a military officer appointed under the governor's command who would lead Her Majesty's troops in Port Natal. I don't want us to get confused here, because Napier, meanwhile, had written his reply to Russell's first letter sent in June. Napier's dated September 29th. The Cape Governor warned that although the Boers should be treated with caution, the eastern Cape frontier was unstable, and that further afield the footrekkers had caused further instability. Despite this, Napier was in a spot of bother, because he didn't have enough troops to secure the frontier, and try to seize Natal. I am firmly persuaded that this question is not to be solved by the force of arms. Such a course would only be attended with great loss of life on both sides. Here he was inaccurate. The pain of the great loss of life and the coming clash with the Boers was going to be felt almost exclusively by the British. Anyway, Napier continued, And be the means of inflicting such misery and suffering upon the emigrants, their wives and children, their feelings of anger and hatred to the British government would be increased tenfold in the breasts of the discomfited and irritated farmers. Napier warned that the Boers would then press further into the interior and wreak upon the defenceless natives vengeance for their wrongs. Thus the scenes of injustice and cruelty would be renewed. Defenceless natives, I ask you. That is no way to talk about the Amazulu, the Batlokwa, the Basutu, the Amandebele, the Amamtetwa, the Amandwandwe, the Amatkosa, 
not to mention the Bapedi, the Baralong, the Hurutsi, etc., etc. Shaka and all the other chiefs who'd passed away would have turned in their graves had they heard themselves being called defenceless. However, that was the British administrator's line, and he was going to stick to it. About the Boers, he wrote, Their crimes would go unpunished because they would move into a savage country from where, for want of provisions, it would be impracticable for troops to follow them. He earnestly, according to historian Manfred Nathan, requested Lord John Russell to authorise him to enter into negotiations with these farmers, these Boers, to hear their grievances, but reiterated his opinion that military establishments were necessary to maintain peace. The British officials were warning darkly of the Boer slave trading. Someone had to stop it, they said in Cape Town. These poor people needed protecting from the Boers, and who better than the English? Sir George Napier was still caught in the middle somewhat. While he was clearly in support of seizing Port Natal, he was also acutely aware of avoiding bloodshed. And speaking of bloodshed, things were developing fast in Natal, as they tended to do back in those days. The Boers in Pernamaransburg had gone through a combination of good and bad luck. In 1839, more than half a dozen people had died when a candle tipped over in one of the houses there, burning down 13. The blaze was made worse by the gunpowder stores in most of these houses, and the fire was so intense it spread to nearby wagons. Then a measles epidemic struck in 1840. Whole families, sometimes of 30, were sick. But the Trekkers had also built their Halofta Kerk, or Church of the Vow, which Pretorius had promised the Trekkers they would construct if they defeated the Amazulu at Blood River. This church was built in the centre of Peter Maritzburg, opposite Market Square. And it's now time to renew our acquaintance with Daniel Lindley, that American missionary. Remember, he'd been living with Mzilikatsi until he fled when the commander attacked the Amandabeli's chief's main residence near Mariko. So, within the church walls of Slate and Yellowwood, Lindley, with his American accent, began to preach in the Dutch he'd learned over the past three years. He also preached to the Voortrekkers in Viennan district and in Port Natal, as well as along the Moy River. He would hop onto his wagon once a year and then climb the Drakensberg Mountains to conduct services for Trekkers at Winberg. As Dingana had forecast, the Boers began to divvy up the land. Every Voortrekker over the age of 17 received two farms. They were five and a half kilometers square, roughly 3,000 acres. Eventually, leaders like Pretorius had turned themselves into a conglomerate. They owned so many, 12 in his case, while Gert Rudolf managed to gather together 40 farms, a veritable province all by himself. He owned so much land. The three new districts were opened up by the Boers for the people to populate with Port Natal, Pietermaritzburg, and Viennin. The most sought-after sites, however, were close to the port, as they are today. 120 were snapped up in June 1840 alone, and if you wanted a sea view, you'd pay 18 pounds and 15 shillings. Using my trusty inflation calculator, 100 pounds in 1840 would be around 12,562 pounds today. So these parcels of land were selling for just over 3,000 pounds in today's value. The Boers also took control of the harbour at Port Natal, installing their own harbour master. While things looked like they were going swimmingly, they weren't. The Voortrekkers, who had got used to being led by a militarised, strong leader, were now being advised by the Volksrad. Chaos had ensued as the three-member committee tasked by the Volksrad in running day-to-day policies were literally ignored. The Volksrad met quarterly on the first Monday of January, April, July and October 
and elected a chairman for the next three months. This chairman would be the formal leader of the small commissie Rat, who would then try to instill some form of political and social discipline. It was a pretty mad process, because the trekkers, so used to their own ways and independence, would roundly condemn the committee if it passed any laws or tried to institute any rules they didn't like. The committee members would often receive verbal abuse from the public, particularly at meetings where the trekkers would stand up and scream insults. Rules would be announced, then reversed a day later. Some of the meetings turned violent, fisticuffs and slaps dispensed as the heated arguments boiled over. Later, historians would laud this period as an ideal example of democracy, but it was more like anarchy or mob rule, as author Robert Binks points out. If the commissie didn't change rules the people didn't like, the trekkers just ignored these rules. Landros were unable to compel Boers to attend court hearings if the accused didn't feel like it. Up over the escarpment, Portkita was running his ship in a more organized fashion. He had a Volksrat of twelve who were more like his cabinet. The problem was the Natal Volksrat believed they were in charge of the Winbach Volksrat. That is not how Portkita nor his people saw it. For the Boers in Peter Maddisburg, they were the heartland of the new Republic Natalia, and this republic, as far as they were concerned, stretched all the way from the Vaal River to the Orange River and down onto the coast of Natal. This concept was reinforced when Jakob de Klaak was nominated by the Natal Volksrat as Landrost of the land west of the Drakensberg. He was administering a vast area between the Fet and Vaal rivers for the Natal Boers. Puthita was still, however, doing things his way. Earlier in 1840, he journeyed to Delagoa Bay to meet with Portuguese governor Antonio Gamito, who was eager to establish formal trade relations. The Boers could now access two ports, and Portgita returned home to his farm near Freiburg, happy in the knowledge that the trekkers were no longer dependent on the accursed English. It was in the first quarter of 1840 that Portgita received a letter from the Natal Volksrat formally inviting him to join forces. If you remember what had transpired earlier, Pretorius's followers had accused Portgita of cowardice, particularly when it came to the Flach commander and how it had fled before the Amazulu at the Battle of Italeni. Could these two patch up their differences? This would be a qualified no, at least at first. Portgita respectfully declined the invitation, but some of his followers rebelled. Kaspar Kriya, who was chairman of the council at Potchestrum, wrote his own letter to the Natal Volksrat saying he liked the idea of a joint venture. In October 1840, Pretorius travelled to Freiburg to meet with Portgieter, joined by G.R. van Royen, along with the VIP protection and eight wagons. It took 12 days to travel between Peter Marisburg and Potchestrum, which was to become known as the first proper town established across the Vaal. Yes, there is some dispute about this. The oldest European settlement was Klagstorp, which lies further west of Potch. Some historians have challenged this, saying there was a formal settlement in the upper regions of the Schoenspreit, between Klagstorp and Potchestrum, which was actually the first European settlement. However, Potchestrum was the first town in the area, including Winbach, was known as the Republic Winbach Potchestrum. So Pretorius van Rooyen and Pochita and his advisors duly met at Potch, which was actually situated 10 kilometers north of where the present-day town can be found, on the right bank of the Moda River. A few days after Pretorius arrived, 300 Boers gathered here to watch as Pretorius and Pochita discussed unity. Finally, after much debate, it was agreed that the Boers should unify under the Volksrat in Peter Marisburg, which would be the capital. 
However, a second Volksrat would be elected to represent the Voortrekkers on the western side of the Drakensberg, and three members from here would attend the quarterly gathering in Pietermaritzburg. Andries Pretorius was elected Commandant General of Republic Natalia, and Portgieter was called the Chief Commandant of the district of Potschestrum. Both would report to the Natal Volksrat, and with that, celebrations proceeded with the usual firing of guns and general cavorting through the night. Well, this gathering had sidestepped a rather important diplomatic likelihood. What would happen if the British decided to retake Port Natal, which was now rapidly becoming known as Durban? Would Portgieter's botch commander come galloping to the aid of the Republic Natalia or not? Pretorius arrived back in Pietermaritzburg on the 2nd of November with the great news. Unification had been achieved. But he took this further and remarked that, Whoever insults Hendrik Portgieter insults me. I will give my life. For Hendrik Potkieter. So it is double irony that former South African President Jacob Zuma used a speech delivered in Potchestrum in 2016 to point out that EFF leader Julius Malema claimed earlier that he'd give his life for Zuma, only to retract. He used to say, I will die for Zuma. How do you trust that he now means what he says? blurted a somewhat angry Jacob. To which Julius replied in a tweet that, He wanted to molest me without Vaseline. And I must keep quiet, he can go to hell. Ah, yes, these days the two shining lights of South African democracy have apparently shared the aforementioned Vaseline and made up. Well, let's see how long that love affair lasts. So in February 1841, Portita and a young Paul Krier attended their first meeting in Peter Maritzberg sans Vaseline. The gathering agreed to set up a smaller adjunct or sub-council in Potschestrum to handle affairs in the Haarfeld, but decisions would have to be ratified by the Volksrat in Maritzburg. There was still no discussion about what to do with the British invaded Natal, lurking like a poisonous mist in the background, was Stefanus Maritz, who was deeply unhappy about Pretorius getting all the kudos. Gert Maritz, you remember, had passed away, and Stefanus's brother was opposed to Pretorius taking charge. When Stefanus had orchestrated a petition signed by over 50 trekkers against Pretorius's leadership, the Volksrat had determined that no single man would be appointed unless for a specific task, a specific commander or raid. So deep did this rancor go that when Stephanus Moritz and Andres Pretorius were both re-elected to the Volksrat in 1840, Stephanus excused himself from all future meetings for a year. And still, the question of what the British were up to and whether the Fortrickers would respond together remained an unknown. For the British... An excuse to seize Port Natal would be provided by the Boers' next actions. They were going to raid southwestly towards the Cape, blaming the Batka people of being behind recent livestock raiding. From the historical analysis, we know that the raiders were a combination of the feared Amatola San Horseman you've heard about, working with the Amabakta. What happened next is for next episode. If you could rate the podcast on iTunes or any other of your favorite platforms that helps elevate its visibility, you can head off to the website desmondlatham.blog where I'll upload an update about this episode. You can email me directly from there. Until next, tootsies.